Hello everyone and welcome to this episode of the Wisdom on Wheels podcast. I'm Steve Johnson and it is good to be with you again. On the last episode of this of the Wisdom on Wheels podcast, we looked at the attributes of God's nature. We looked at his omniscience, which meaning he knows all. His omnipotence, which means which means he possesses all power. His omnipresence, which means he's everywhere all the time. Uh, there's never anywhere that he is not. Um, his eternality, meaning that he is, he's always existed and he always will. Uh, we looked at the fact that God is immutable, meaning that his nature and character never changes. Now, there are times in the Bible when it talks about God changing his mind. That's not an anthropomorphism. I mean, as some theologians would say that that's just man's attempt to try to explain God and use terms that we understand. God can change his mind, but his character and nature never changes. In other words, I'm under the wrath of God before I accepted Christ as my Savior. I was under God's wrath. God's wrath is part of his nature. When I accepted Christ as my Savior and the blood of Jesus washed away my sins, I then accessed a different aspect, accessed a different aspect of God's nature, His love and mercy and grace, that I did that I could not access prior to the decision that I made to accept Jesus as my Savior. So I accept I am then encountering a different aspect of God's nature that I was previously under. So God changes his mind in that he, he changes, it's not like there's something he never thought of. That's not what it means when God changes his mind. But it means that we can, we have access to a different aspect of who he is depending on what we do. And so we looked at that. And then the sixth one that we looked at was his incomprehensibleness, basically meaning that if God didn't reveal anything to us about himself, then we would not be able to comprehend him. The only reason we're able to comprehend anything about him is because he reveals it to us in ways that we can understand. He reveals things about himself to us. That's the only reason we can understand anything about him. Otherwise, he is unfathomable, as it says in, we could see that in Job chapter 11, verse 7, and in Romans chapter 11, verse 33. So, those were the first six of the attributes of God's nature that we looked at. Now, we have 18 more of these, a total of 24 that we're going to be looking at. And I originally thought I was going to cover all 24 of these in one podcast. Then when I got through six and realized I was at one hour already, I figured, you know what, uh, probably a better idea to split this up. So if we go, if we get through six again tonight, then that'll be, we'll be doing this in four parts, the attributes of God's nature. But we're going to go ahead and get started so we don't waste any more time. We're already almost four minutes into this podcast. So the next part of God's nature we are going to look at is God being self-existent. Now what does that mean when we say God is self-existent? 
That means that God depends on nothing for his existence. The whole basis of his existence is within himself. Before time, nothing but God existed. He created time. He added nothing to himself by creating. He's eternally self-existent. He needs nothing else. He's not dependent on you or me or anything else, any other being or force for his existence. God has always existed, and all three forms of the Godhead have existed. All three members of the Trinity have existed for eternity. That would be God the Father, Jesus Christ the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus did not begin to exist when he was born on earth. He's always existed. As we're going to see with the first passage, we're going to be looking up related to God's self-existence and Jesus' self-existence, which is John the first three verses of the Gospel of John. John 1, 1 through 3. Which if you go back to uh, season 2, uh, episode 1 of The Chosen, John wrestles with how to begin his Gospel writing. And eventually he settles on what we know as the first three verses of, of John. With the, in the beginning, was well, here we go, we're just going to listen to it. Having a little trouble, there we go. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was at the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him, nothing was made that was made. In the beginning was the Word. The Word is referring to Jesus himself. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So Jesus was in the beginning with God, meaning he was with his Father. He was with the Holy Spirit. He was with God and he was God. He was in the beginning with God. No, nothing was made that was made without him. Basically meaning that Jesus has always existed and was just involved in the creation as the other two members of the Trinity. The next verse we're going to look at is Exodus 3.14 when God tells Moses his name. I am who I am. Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God says to Moses, I am who I am. You shall tell them, I am has sent, you, has sent me to you. The Hebrew word there uh, means to exist. So God says, I am basically just, who are you, God? I am, you know, that's, I mean, the very basic, it's me, I am, I'm the creator, I am, I am who I am. Uh, it doesn't get much more, I mean, the, the richness of that is worth an episode in itself to get into everything that's contained in the proper name of God. In Hebrew, we would call that, or we would attempt to pronounce that, Yahweh. Um, 
but and the Jews because they don't want to misuse his name will say Adonai meaning the name or excuse me no Adonai um, they will say Adonai as a substitute let me rephrase that um, Adonai is the substitute for Yahweh Hashem just means the name so sometimes you'll We'll hear them say, like during worship services, Hashem, or in casual conversation, they'll refer to the name rather than using Adonai or the proper name which we attempt to pronounce as Yahweh or Jehovah or however people have tried to pronounce that over time. Alright. And, um, let's see, is there another verse here yeah there's another one with the self-existence of God that would be John chapter 5 and verse 26 for as the father has life in himself so he has granted the son to have life in himself so God is self-existent meaning he is the source of his own existence and in the same way, Jesus says that same thing was granted to him through the Father. So that same thing is the case with Jesus as well. He is self-existent. That's why Jesus would say otherwhere, or otherwhere, elsewhere in the Gospels, he would say that um, no one has the power to take my life from me. I lay it down and I take it up again because Jesus is self-existent. The only reason he died is because he chose to. The only reason he suffered is because he chose to because he came for a purpose and that was the purpose. The next attribute of God we're going to look at is his self-sufficiency. God is self-sufficient. That means that God acts out his will without assistance now he has limited himself in that he you know he I mean one of the first things he did back when he created humanity was to say um, to give man authority over the earth he limited his own ability to sovereignize, he, he basically handcuffed himself in a way, sort of. And there's other, by giving us free will, he's handcuffed himself because he's given us his word that he's given us the freedom to choose. I've set before you life and death, therefore choose life that you and your descendants may live. But he's given us the choice so he's limited his own exercise of his power by his word, which he cannot break. But he is self-sufficient in that he is able, when he doesn't place any limits on himself, he is able, he, he doesn't need anything or anyone else to accomplish anything that he does.
and there's several passages that will talk about this. The first one we're going to look at is Psalm 50, verses 7 through 12. Again, that is Psalm 50, verses 7 through 12. Hear, O my people, and I will speak, O Israel, and I will testify against you. I am God, your God. I will not rebuke you for your sacrifices or your burnt offerings, which are continually before me. I will not take a bull from your house, nor goats out of your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the mountains, and the wild beasts of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine, and all its fullness. So, in other words, everything belongs to God. He has access to everything, because it all belongs to Him. And so He's self-sufficient. He's not dependent on us for anything. So why does he ask us to give, for example? What's the reason for the tithe? It's not because God is going to run out of money if we don't tithe. It's a requirement that he has of us to keep greed from seeping into our hearts. And as a show of worship and appreciation to him, that's why he requires the tithe. It's to keep the cancer of greed from gaining a foothold in your soul and making you feel entitled to something that is when it, you know it all belongs to him so we give that 10 percent back to him as a reminder or as a as a thank you for what he has provided for us not because god's going to run out of money if i don't tithe the church might run out of money if you don't tithe but god's not god's going to find a way to do what he, he needs to do it's for your benefit and for your growth, not for his. The next uh, verse we're going to look at in regards to God's self-sufficiency is Acts chapter 17, verses 24 and 25. Again, that's Acts chapter 17, verses 24 and 25. God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands, as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life breath and all things. So God doesn't need anything. He, he doesn't. He's not like the idols that of the false gods of pagan cultures who are made with human hands and require food sacrifices and drink sacrifices or they're going to get angry because they are hungry or whatever. They're going to get hangry. Uh, God does not need any of that. God is God. He is self-sufficient. He doesn't require anything from us he requires things of us morally speaking for for our sake to have a relationship with him but he requires nothing of us for his own benefit or his own he has no needs i guess would be a good way to put it 
Now we're going to look at Romans chapter 11, verse 36. Again, that's Romans chapter 11, verse 36. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. There's not much to expand beyond that. It's pretty self-explanatory. All things exist because of him and are for him and whatever. There's, there's not much else you can add to that, so I won't. The next characteristic of God we're going to look at is that God is infinite. What does it mean to say God is infinite? That means he's not bound or limited by anything in or the totality of his created universe. So nothing limits God. In other words, the only... He's, well, let, let me, it's not that nothing limits God. Nothing in the universe, nothing he created limits him. So what did I just say before? I thought you said, Steve, you didn't you just say that God limited himself? Exactly. God limited himself. We didn't limit him. We don't have the power to limit him. When God gives us free will and then we choose to reject him and go to hell, it's not because God doesn't have the power to stop us from going. It's that he limited his own exercise of his power by his word, and he's bound by his word because of his integrity, which is another aspect of his nature. When we get over into the moral attributes of God, he's infinite. He doesn't need us for anything. But he limits himself because he's the only one that can limit him is himself because there's no other being like him there's none besides him he says so but god is not bound or limited by anything that he creates or the totality of everything he creates and the two verses we're going to look at with this the first one is first kings eight twenty seven, and that's first kings eight twenty seven. God indeed dwell on the earth. Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple which I have built. Will God indeed dwell on the earth? Heaven of heavens cannot contain you. In other words, even, even in heaven, God can't be contained by it. That's why God is everywhere. There's, he's unlimited. Nothing can contain him. The only limitations he has, again, are those he places on himself. And that's seen here in this verse, even in a, in a sense of presence. Oh, God can withdraw his presence from a place, or the... God can withdraw his presence from a person in the sense that they no longer are affected by or are aware of his presence, meaning he's no, he's no longer with them. But does he cease to does he cease to exist in that place? No, I would say based on these verses and others that he doesn't cease to exist in those places, even though he withdraws all of his attributes and his the awareness of himself in that environment. Now we're going to look at Psalm one forty five three. As the Hang on one moment here. Let me, it's uh, Psalm 
145.3 is the last verse we're going to look at in regards to God's infin infiniteness, if that's a word, him being infinite. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. That's another one of those things where I feel like it kind of explains itself and does not need any other comment from me. The next attribute of God we're going to look at is God's transcendence. God is transcendent. That means that God is above his creation. He existed before his creation, during creation, and he will exist even if he decided to annihilate everything he made. Even if God decided to annihilate the entire universe so that, again, nothing existed, which he will never do, by the way. According to his own word, he will never do that. But if he decided to, if he had chosen to, he could, again, annihilate everything in the entire universe, including the heaven in which he primarily resides, and he would still exist. He needs nothing. Again, I know I've said that a lot, but I feel like it bears repeating. He would exist if he decided to annihilate everything because he transcends everything that he has made. And the first verse we're going to look at in relation to this is Isaiah chapter 43 and verse 10. Again, that's Isaiah chapter 43 and verse number 10. You are my witnesses, says the Lord. And my servant, whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me, and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, nor shall there be after me. Again, that kind of shoots a dagger in one of the cornerstones of Mormon theology, but this isn't about Mormons, so I'm not going to get into that right now. But the point here is that there was no God before God. There was nothing that existed before God because God's always existed. So the question of who created God, I remember my uncle David asking me that one time on the way back from church. He'd always struggled with the idea of who created God. And the whole question itself, as sincere as it was, and I'm not trying to pick on him or be mean, but the entire question is a logical fallacy, who created God? Because no matter how far back you go, there has to be something that has always existed. Because nothing in creation, nothing in the universe exists without a cause. So that means above and beyond the universe, there had to be an uncaused cause. There had to be something that has always existed. And that uncaused cause that ever-existent being is God. He said, There is none, no God formed before me, and, there, and nor shall there be after me, meaning he exists forever. And the next verse we're going to look at, verses we're going to look at in regards to God's transcendence, we're going to stay in the book of Isaiah, and we're going to go to chapter 55, verses 8 and 9. It's Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, 
Nor are your ways my ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now, he, you know, God says that my thoughts are higher than your thoughts, my ways are higher than your ways. This ties back to, I think that verse, those two verses might be a little bit out of context because he was talking to people here who weren't following him. But it is still universally true, even with that little caveat that I just gave. It's still universally true that God is, his thoughts are higher than ours. I just got through talking about before about how God reveals everything about himself to us. Otherwise, we wouldn't be able to understand anything about him. So even though these verses might be out of context for the topic, it's still true that God, you know, God's thoughts and ways are higher than ours could ever be. The next attribute of God we're going to look at is God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty. What does that mean when we talk about God's sovereignty? It means that God totally, supremely, and preeminently rules over all his creation. No person, place, or thing is independent of his foreknown plan and providence. So God never looked at me and said, Whoa, how'd you get here? I've never had a thought or a word or an intention where he didn't where he went, Whoa, I didn't see that coming. And God never looked at, take the most powerful tyrant in the history of the human race, humanly speaking. Um, Satan would obviously be the most powerful tyrant in the history of everything, but humanly speaking, the most powerful tyrant. God never looked at him or her and went, gosh, you know, that one looks a little tough. <laughs> God's sovereign. Okay. And to see that, the first verse we're going to look at is Psalm 103, verse 19. Again, that's Psalm 103, verse 19. Hang on one moment here. And let me pull this up on my Word of Promise Bible thing. The Lord has established His throne in heaven. And his kingdom rules over all. This again is an expression of God's sovereignty. He has established his throne in heaven and he rules over all. So even though he's given us free will and we do have the freedom of choice and we do have a certain amount of authority over what happens here, even in that, and I, I, I emphasize that a lot because I feel like there's a lot of error when it comes to this whole doctrine of the foreknowledge of God and the, the sovereignty of God and all that. And even though I do believe that in reality, the, the truth is he's still sovereign and we're still going to be accountable to him, even though he gives us freedom of choice. It's not freedom of consequence. God is still sovereign and he's still is the final judge and determiner of whether there will, whether or not there will be reward or loss and where a person spends eternity. So he's the final judge. Um, only 
a sovereign can be a judge. Now we're going to look at Daniel chapter 4, verses 34 and 35, as we continue with the sovereignty of God. And at the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my understanding returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, What have you done? So God, again, he's sovereign. He, he, this is a, a, an ungodly king, or at least he was ungodly at one time. I don't, he that certainly doesn't seem to be here. He's at least acknowledging because he's finally gotten it. And there's a whole series of events that led up to Nebuchadnezzar acknowledging this about God. But he is acknowledging here Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon is acknowledging that God's dominion is everlasting his kingdom will go on forever and he's so powerful that there's nothing and no one who can go hey you can't do that or hey what'd you do that for in other words whenever the final judgment comes nobody's gonna say oh, well you can't do that well well yes he can and he's going to the uh, best thing to do is to agree <laughs> um, because he's God. And uh, so there we go. The next verse we're going to look at, we're going to look at two passages in Isaiah, a total of five verses. The first here in Isaiah we're going to look at is Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 23. It's Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 23. He brings the princes to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth useless. Again, so there's nothing here. That there's nothing where God says, you know, gosh, that guy is just too powerful. I just can't handle that one. What am I gonna do? Better take a tums. I'm getting some indigestion here. That guy's got me worried. <laughs> that army's got me worried. No, God is sovereign. He's sovereign overall, and all will be accountable to him. Psalm 46, excuse me, not Psalm, Isaiah 46, verses 8 through 11, will be the last passage we look at in relation to God's sovereignty. Remember this, and show yourselves men. Recall to mind, O oh, you transgressors, remember the former things of old. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. 
calling a bird of prey from the east, the man who executes my counsel from a far country. Indeed, I have spoken it. I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I will also do it. The part I really want to focus on here is, you know, God, of course, we're talking about God's sovereignty. And he says here, I have no, I have purposed it, I will also do it. I've spoken it and I will bring it to pass. In other words, when he decrees something, that's why I say God can't violate his word. So when God says, for example, um, when God gives us the freedom of choice, he says, you choose. You choose this day whom you will serve. He's now bound by that. Is it because he's not powerful enough? No, it's because he's sovereign. And when he decrees something, he's bound to his own word. So, and then of course he talks about how he declares the end from the beginning. This, um, talks about again this one of the most powerful evidences for the divine authorship of the bible is predictive prophecy god has declared the end from the beginning he already knows the end from the beginning he knew what was going to happen at the end of time before he created time he knew what was well, not at the end of time at the end of he knew what was going to happen at the end of the age and into the eternal ages before he ever before day one ever happened that's why predictive prophecy is so exact and so precise so detailed and so accurate and that's why it's never been wrong because god knows the future prophecy is history written in advance and it behooves us to study it and to know it so that we can see where history is going and we can prepare ourselves and act accordingly. For example, we don't know when, we don't know the day or the hour, but we know that the rapture is coming because God has decreed it. The best thing we can do is to share the gospel with as many people as we can, try to bring as many people to Christ as we can, So that they don't miss it because we know it's coming the events of the bible are set it behooves us then to be aware of that and again prepare ourselves and act accordingly so that's all that we have on the sovereignty of god at least for this study it's not all that there is about it but it's all that we have on it for right now I think because I have a couple of other things going on here, we're going to end this podcast here for now. Uh, I think we only made it through five of the attributes of God, which means we've now been through 11, which means there's 13 left. Um, the next podcast, we're going to go through the moral attributes of God. Let's go ahead and do one more. That way we'll keep it at six, six, six and six. I'm not the Antichrist. I'm just trying to keep this even first moral attribute we're going to look at is God's holiness. God is holy. That means God is morally, morally, excellently, and perfectly pure. 
God is pure. There is no impurity in him. And we're going to look at four verses that speak of God's holiness. The first one we're going to look at is Leviticus 19.2. Speak to all the congregation of the children of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. God demands holiness. He demands purity. It's required. That's why we need the sacrifice of Jesus as a substitute because we've already ruined ourselves on our own. That's why we need what Jesus did on the cross. Now we're going to look at Job, book of Job, chapter 14, and verse number 10. But man dies and is laid away. Indeed, he breathes his last. And where is he? He's in either heaven or hell. But we are not. Um, that, I'm sorry, I looked at the wrong one. This is Job 34.10, not 14.10. I misread my own handwriting. That's my mistake. It's Job 34.10. Pardon me. Not 14.10. That was my mistake. Therefore listen to me, you men of understanding. Far be it from God to do wickedness, and from the Almighty to commit iniquity. That's one of Job's friends, and in that instance he was correct. God does not commit iniquity. Now we're going to look at Isaiah chapter 47 and verse 4. Isaiah 47, not 4. <laughs> Isaiah chapter 47 and verse 4. As for our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts is his name, the Holy One of Israel. The Holy One of Israel is one of God's names. The Holy One. Again, what is holy? It means He is morally and He is morally pure. He is perfectly pure from a moral standpoint. God never has done wrong and He never will. The last verse we're going to look at with this is Isaiah chapter 57. It's Isaiah chapter 57 and verse 15. For thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. So God again emphasizes his holiness here. That means his perfect purity. There's nothing impure. There's nothing sinful. There's nothing wrong in him. He is good all the time. Just like the movie says, uh, um, God's not dead. God is good all the time, and all the time God is good. That speaks to God's holiness, his perfection, his moral perfection. All right, that's all I have for today. We've now gone through 12 of the attributes of God, 12 out of the 24. Next time we will go through attributes number 13 through 18.
for our study. This has been Steve Johnson for the Wisdom on Wheels podcast. Thank you very much for joining me. You can email me at wisdomonwheels83 at gmail.com if you wish to contact me. God bless and have a great night. Bye-bye.